Uh, we were an early investor there. So if you played way too much Mafia Wars or Farmville, it's our fault. Uh, <laughs> or words with friends or keep going. Um, I wouldn't say it's totally our fault. It's partially our fault. <laughs> Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have Brad Feld, who is an entrepreneur, author, blogger, and venture capitalist at Foundry Group and the co-author of Startup Opportunities, which is your guide, your go-to guide for anyone with a great business idea. Brad's been somebody that I've been trying to get on this podcast for a while. We got David Cohen back on a while back, but Brad, how's it going? It's good. Nice to nice to see you, Eric. Yeah, good to see you as well. I don't usually do video, but here you are. So yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I don't know, people like audio, people don't want to show their their, their faces for, for whatever reason, but tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do, because I know you do a lot of things. Sure. I'm a partner at a venture capital firm called Foundry Group, which is based in Boulder, but invests in tech companies all around the U.S. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Techstars, which sounds like your audience uh, has gotten to know through David Cohen. And we also have a number of programs, Techstars programs in LA, both uh, Techstars LA as well as Techstars Music and Techstars Health with Cedar sinai um, I have written a number of books about entrepreneurship and technology. Uh, I run marathons. Uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman named Amy, who we've been together for 27 years. And I have two dogs and no kids. Awesome. Great. You know what? I actually just remembered something. You just spoke about your wife. I think you wrote about something where uh, what, what's that? What's that rule? The ninety percent rule? The ninety-seven percent rule? Three percent rule? What is that? The three percent rule is I only want three percent, but I really want the three percent that I want. So we're uh, one of the books that uh, I wrote, Amy and I wrote together. It's called Startup Life: uh, Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur. And uh, we co-wrote it. It's not autobiographical, but it has a fair amount of you know storytelling from us. And one of the stories was this this three percent rule, which is basically. Amy gets her way 97% of the time. Mm. Um, we know she knows really clearly what 3% are important to me. And they tend to be things like, I don't care at all about uh, furniture. Um, so whatever furniture we have, we have. And she likes design and she likes furniture. So she spends a lot of time on it. But it's super important to me that I have a couch that is long enough for me to lay down on uh, after I go for a run when I'm sweaty. So it has to be made out of a material that she doesn't care that I lay down on it after I get back from a run. Um, you know, that, that would be an example. And one of the neat things about, um, about that, that notion is, uh, another thing that we use in that is this idea of the magic eight ball rule. And a lot of people know about magic eight balls, remember the magic ball where it says, you know, you shake it and it says, yes, no, maybe. And then there's a couple of other clever sayings. The the vast majority of the 97%, I don't care what the answer is. I don't care what you know, she wants to do. Um, and many times she's doing things that benefit both of us, but I'm indifferent. I'm happy with whatever it is. I'm happy with what she wears tonight. I'm happy with what she bought. I'm happy with what, you know, car she drives. I'm happy with a whole bunch of things. But if she asks a question like, you know, do you like the, you know, these shoes or these shoes? 
If I say, I don't care, that's a bad answer. <laughs> so we use the magic eight ball rule, which is I give her an answer. But we have to use the magic eight ball rule like the golden retriever rule. So the magic eight ball rule is uh, I just basically say yes, no, or maybe. And I don't care what she does. Like I say, I like pair number two better. If she chooses pair number one, totally fine. But I have to say it with golden retriever eyes. And anybody that has a dog knows what those eyes are. It's the, the, the look the dog makes. The loving, caring eyes. Loving, unconditional love, like you're holding a, a piece of hamburger in your hand. And so you have to say yes, no, or maybe with that look while you're giving your partner the golden retriever eyes. So and how, how, how does she how feel you when, you, when you're using these rules on her? Well, she made them up. So she's oh, very okay. happy. And uh, uh, now we made them up together. I mean, they're a good source of, of amusement for both of us because, uh, you know, when she's asking me whether I like, you know, a pair of shoes A or a pair of shoes B, she's just looking for connection with me. She's not looking for my opinion on which shoes I like better. And what she's basically saying is, hey, you know, I'm making a decision. Pay attention to me. Or will you talk to me instead of whatever you're doing? It's it's like a, a, a gentler way of saying, hey, pay attention. And, you know, it's 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 you sort of over a long period of time. You learn these these little cues from each other as partners. And one of the things, you know, that I think we've worked hard at as a couple is having those cues be positive cues. And I think many couples that have been together for a long time, you know, you think about couples who bicker all the time or, you know, you, it's very predictable, uh, the negative dynamics that your parents are going to be in after they've been together for a long time. Mm. What they're doing is they're letting all those cues be negative cues instead of positive ones. Right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. It seems like you've been very deliberate about relationships, about kind of who you invest in and all everything that you do in life in general. So is, I mean, I wonder if there's a story behind that. Well, I believe that uh, we get one shot. Uh, you know, I I think that you know I'd love to believe that I get reincarnated thousands of times, um, but you know I'm operating under this condition that it doesn't happen. Uh, I also believe that there's infinite number of parallel universes, and I happen to be stuck in this one versus some other one. So, you know, I just want to make the best of it. And uh, I know that in the context of uh, life, many many things are difficult. Mm. Right? I have a uh, a, a longtime family friend whose son got cancer in his early 20s and died. Got it. And, and you know, the, the friend who's a very successful CEO said, you know, uh, life is a fatal disease. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a chemistry joke, which is life is a process of continuous oxidation. But it's, it's the same idea. Like, you know, it, it, it has an end. And so for me, uh, I've learned over time, having made lots of mistakes along the way, um, that I want to spend as much of my time as possible with people that I'm interested in spending time with, that I want to be with. I know that many of those relationships are going to have ups and downs. I'm going to screw up. Other people are going to screw up. I'm going to do things that disappoint people. I'm going to make mistakes. There's going to be things that are exogenous to me that go wrong that I have to deal with. And that's just part of the experience of life. So why not try to set yourself up uh, for as much positive joy, happiness as you can against the backdrop of what is, you know, this very, very complicated and, and often very unsatisfying, unfriendly and unfun world. I love it. Yeah. And I think all this starts to connect towards your work with, you know, the startup world and just investing in general. So just so everyone gets a refresher on kind of, you know, maybe kind of who you are. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the companies that you've invested in and then lead that up to startup opportunities? Sure. So Foundry has been around since 2007. Um, I've actually been investing since 1994. I, I sold my first company in 1993. I made 40 angel investments in the next three years with uh, most of the money that I made from that sale. 
Uh, a company that many people will have heard of that I invested in from that time period was a company called Harmonix, mm. uh, which made the games Guitar Hero and, and Rock Band, uh, as well as Dance Central. So, um, you know, video game company that had had huge success. Um, I ended up in another co-founding a venture firm uh, in 1997 uh, that turned into Mobius Venture Capital. Uh, I then in 2007 co-founded Foundry Group, which is the firm that I'm part of that my partners and I invest from. We've invested some companies that people may know, some consumery companies would include Zynga. Uh, we were an early investor there. So if you played way too much Mafia Wars or Farmville, it's our fault. Uh, or words, words with friends or keep going. Um, I wouldn't say it's totally our fault. It's partially our fault. <laughs> Um, we were early investors in Fitbit, which um, uh, just uh, just came out with a, a new product that I'm anxiously looking forward to getting. Uh, we're investors in a company called Sphero. Oh, yeah, we had them. Uh, okay, so yeah. uh, BB-8, which was the product that they came out with two years ago around uh, uh, the Star Wars, uh, Star Wars 7 on, on the movie that just came out uh, uh, or that's coming out in December. They just – Force Friday is tomorrow. Uh, Sphero just announced um, – uh, two more robots, an R2-D2 uh, and a, a BB-9V robot, which nice. is the, the evil droid. And um, uh, another company people may know, Little Bits, also came out with something for a Star Wars product called the Droid Kit, so you can actually assemble droids using right. Little Bits. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've invested in a bunch of uh, enterprise uh, software companies, as well as um, uh, some hardware-related companies, uh, MakerBot, which was one of the early 3D printer companies, is an investment of ours. So that's the kind of stuff we do. So before we even talk about the book, I mean, one thing I want to touch upon. So you said you sold your company in 93, and then you basically took all of your money and started investing it? Yeah, I made a couple million bucks from the sale. Uh -huh. uh, Amy and I moved from Boston to Boulder in 1995, uh, and we spent some of the money and bought a house. And I promised her that we'd never have less than $100,000 in the bank. Oh, the rest was all in. And 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 uh, I actually had to tell her. Uh, I remember very vividly having to tell her that we were under a hundred thousand dollars because I'd made an investment that put us under a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I took you know basically I, I made forty investments, twenty five and fifty thousand dollars at a time. And um, by nineteen ninety six, there were starting to be some exits. So you know the the, the money came back pretty quickly in ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight because it was a particularly good time to be investing in early stage tech companies. Um, and that angel investing activity ended up being, uh, very, very successful for me. Um, but from a, uh, sort of personal perspective, I was 28 when I sold my first company and my view was, you know, if I invested all the money and it all went to zero, my worst case was that I just keep starting companies. Love and, you know, I, I, I really wasn't terribly concerned with, uh, the specific outcome, the general outcome I cared about. I mean, I didn't want to lose all the money, but, um, uh, I was much more enthusiastic about this idea of, learning how to be a good investor, investing quickly, getting involved in lots and lots of, of, of things that were, were new to me. Got it. All right. Well, I guess this all leads up to startup opportunities. You've worked with a lot of startups. You've invested in a ton. You've started your own. So what is Startup Opportunities about? Well, I, I wrote this book with a guy named Sean Wise, who's a professor at uh, Ryerson in Canada and also angel investor, um, with the idea that there's a lot of books that talk about what to do um, as you're starting to build up your company, right? So you've got an idea, you've locked down on what that idea is going to be. And now you're, you know, essentially running the lean startup drill or you're, you know, doing lean launch pad. And these methodologies, by the way, didn't exist in 1994. So, you know, Steve Blank and Eric Reese, um, uh, Bill Allett from MIT, who came up with this idea of disciplined entrepreneurship, like these methodologies are really, really, uh, powerful, uh, and they're extremely helpful. But, 
what would happen is I get emails from people who would say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this new business. What do you think of it? And I'd say, you know, sounds good. You know, read one of these books. They'll help you. And somebody would come back with a note a month or two later. Hey, I read the book and the book's really interesting. But what do you think of the idea? And the problem was that people were getting locked up in this notion of how important to them the idea was. And the idea itself is relatively unimportant. It's what you do with that idea. Mm. So what we tried to do was write a book that didn't replace Eric Reese's Lean Startup um, you know, or Steve Blank's work or any of that, but instead was the thing you would read before it. So you're thinking about starting a company. You're still working or you're You've, you're, you're, you know, working with a co-founder and coming up with ideas and trying things, but you're really kind of stuck with what to do with that and how to move from that idea into starting to implement on the idea because you're struggling with, is this idea a good one or not? Our view, and it's one of the very early chapters in the book, t- uh, uh, Tim Ferriss wrote a great essay that originally was in, in another book that I wrote that we, we published here called um, uh, your, uh, Trust Me, Your Idea is Stupid. And his assertion was, it's not the idea, it's what you do with the idea, it's the execution of the idea. And so we try to get very quickly in this book, this notion of opportunity, like if you're take your idea and you say, okay, I'm going to take this idea and build a business around it. Is that a good opportunity to go create? What are the characteristics of what could be a really great business? Love it. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to put the, these books in chronological order. So we got Startup Opportunities. That sounds like the book before Lean Startup, right? You're thinking of something. Then you got Lean Startup, and then somebody would go read Startup Life. Does that sound about right? Yeah, when you're, when, uh, you, you know, you're, or, or you're, read Startup Life early on, too. It'll give you a good feeling for the ups and downs of the craziness of trying to create a company. Cool. Great. Well, so Startup Life sounds like, you know, uh, it, it could help with, you know, somebody dating an entrepreneur. What else do you cover in that book? Well, Startup Life is really a book aimed both for the entrepreneur and for the partner of an entrepreneur. And it also works if both partners are entrepreneurs mm-hmm. um, because it really is a journey through the experience as a human being of either being a founder, being an entrepreneur and having an entrepreneurial life, but trying to, in the context of that, have an effective relationship and or at the same time being in a relationship with an entrepreneur and understanding the the pressures and the stresses and the dynamics that the entrepreneur is facing now an important part of this book when Amy and I wrote it was we didn't want it to be what we we started calling just another relationship book so it's not a here's nine ways to have a successful relationship if you're an entrepreneur mm-hmm. It also caused us, and the, the phrase work-life balance is in the book, but by the end of the book, we sort of got to this place where work-life balance is not the thing you're aspiring for. <clears throat> I actually don't like the word balance anymore because balance has this implication that the scales of justice are in balance. And anybody who's an entrepreneur knows that nothing's in balance. It's just a complete freak show almost all the time. Right? You're kind of hanging on by your fingernails just to have everything work. And so we shifted this idea from work-life balance to work-life harmony. Oh, it was it's you that like, wrote that. I knew it. Yeah, it's more like improv jazz, right? You know, you're just sort of, you know, some days it's over here, some days it's over there. You start playing a different tune. And if your partner plays along and it makes beautiful music, that's great. And if it's totally discordant, hey, that's still okay because that could be interesting. You learn something from it. And this idea that there's so much complexity in it, um, we try to give people a sense that even with – relationships like ours that are working really well, there are some, you know, moments where they're really not. And um, we lead the book off. It's a, it's an essay that uh, we, we liked, and I'll give one more, one more example in a sec, but an essay that we liked where, uh, or the story of us almost breaking up. So Amy actually, uh, in this opening essay, 
uh, said to me after a whole series of things, I'll leave the preamble out. We're, we're getting ready for bed and we're getting into bed. And she says, you know, kind of under her breath, I'm done. And it was a Friday night. And I kind of thought, you know, I said, yeah, long week. I'm really tired. I'm looking forward to spending the weekend with you. Uh, and she turned to me and she says, you know what? I mean that I'm done. I don't want to have this relationship anymore. Mm. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're not even a good roommate anymore. And, you know, we love, you know, and she said, I love you. I think you're awesome, but this relationship isn't working. And, you know, that generated, uh, a, a, a long conversation for an hour because I believe you should never go to sleep. And, you know, if you go to bed with your partner and one of you is angry at the other, you should never call it quits. You should talk till you actually at least say, you know, I'm okay. Let's talk some more tomorrow. Huh. Um, and as part of that, um, I then over the course of the weekend, I gave her my phone and my computer and we spent the whole weekend together and made a bunch of rules. And at first she says, I don't want to make rules. That's not romantic. I just want you to be, you know, more something else. I said, look, I'm an engineer. You know, what we're doing isn't working. So give me some rules mm. and, and don't think about it as rules. Think about it as you're controlling me. And she said, oh, that's interesting. I like that. Um, and you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm the very first thing she said to me was, all right, I want you to start tracking how much time you work each day. And I want you to report that to me at the end of the week. And she knew this was a big red button in the middle of my forehead because in my first company, we tracked uh, every f in five minute intervals all the time because <laughs> we build by the hour. And I said, oh, I don't want to do that. That sucks. I hate that. You know that that's not. she's like, hey, hey, I get to make the rules. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> Fuck it. I'll, I'll keep track of my time. Um, another story that we tell early on just to give people a flavor for the book is that um, we don't we we believe only one partner can have a crisis at a time so if you want to have an effective relationship uh, especially in, the, in in a world where one of the partners is an entrepreneur one of you only one can be having a crisis at a time and they can't always be the entrepreneur hmm. and you know you think about a relationship that you're in where you know your partner melts down if you both melt down at the same time it's a disaster but if one of you melts down and the other doesn't, like you can get back to a good place. Like, you know, you can support that person. And if the meltdown moves back and forth and you're you're sort of out of sync in terms of that cadence, I'm doing fine. You're melting down. You're doing fine. I'm melting down. You'll get through kind of anything. Got it. Yeah. You know what? I mean, we can talk about this stuff forever. And I know we're limited on time. So I'm going to I'm going to make these uh, last couple of minutes more efficient or sure. as efficient as possible. But so, you know, startup life, I mean, part of being an entrepreneur, I hear about people you read about Tim Ferriss talking about depression. You've talked about it before in the past. And I, I'm naive. I don't really know what that feels like. So can you talk about that? What did you have to deal with and how do you deal with it? So depression feels different for everyone. And the best way for me to describe how it impacts me is it's the complete and total absence of color. And everything in my world just loses color. And it's not even that I still have black and white and gray. I just don't. Everything's just sort of this bland Right. That's the color. It's just bland. And um, uh, for me, uh, I've also learned over time that I can't just get out of a depressive episode. It eventually just goes away and I feel better. Um, there's lots of things I can do in terms of self-care when I'm having a depressive episode. But one of the things that uh, is important to realize if you have never felt depression or you're not, you know, you don't know what depression is because you haven't felt it, is that there isn't a single feeling. And um, there are lots of different things that, that happen. And, and I like to lead people into it easily. Most people, most everybody has had moments of anxiety. And you have anxiety about different things. You're anxious about positive and negative things. You're anxious about a health issue. You're anxious about getting a client. You're anxious about taking a test. You're anxious about going out on a date. You're anxious as you're waiting for somebody to call you back or something. 
um, imagine that anxiety level continuing to increase to a point where it's almost debilitating and where you're just incredibly uncomfortable because of the increase in anxiety. And that's one of the things that I struggle with is um, I have uh, what I call anxiety spikes, but they'd be inappropriate anxiety spikes. So there's extreme anxiety that's disproportionate to the specific thing that's going on, mm. right? A life or death-like feeling of anxiety when, you know, I, I'm, I'm just having trouble making coffee. And it's usually because of other issues, right? It's not the specific thing that's going on that's causing the anxiety spike. And for me, uh, personally, eventually, if there's too much of that activity, it tips into or it can tip into a depressive episode and a bunch of other stuff wrapped up in that. One of the things that is the hardest thing for somebody that's struggling with depression to hear from somebody else is you'll be OK. Yeah. It'll be all right. Just get over it, because it's it's almost the the complete understanding that the other person doesn't realize what you're struggling with. And anyway, so the, the loneliness of being depressed is part of the hard thing in it. You're in this place where nothing feels good, whatever your definition of good is. And some people are worried they're going to feel this way forever. And that's an incredibly difficult place to be. So how do you deal with it? Well, for me, uh, and I've had a number of major depressive episodes. I used to talk about that I had three and uh, over the over over the years, and I, I kind of realized that I probably had uh, a two to eight week depressive episode pretty much every every winter huh. between October, November, December. And I used to just explain it as I don't like Christmas and I don't like the holidays and you know I'm a cranky Jewish kid and <laughs> I didn't have Christmas as a kid. And I, but I was probably just exhausted, and I'd have this boomer bust where I get really exhausted from the intensity of the year. And I just wasn't taking care of myself. Hmm. And what ended up happening is now I reflect on it. I focus primarily when I'm starting to feel depressed or tired, which for me a lot of times can lead to depression. Um, I really focus on self-care. Um, I, I do things very systematically that are better for me. I create time for myself. I do the things that I know that are good for me physiologically. I uh, I only drink one cup of coffee a day versus a bunch of coffee. So I cut back on caffeine. I don't drink uh, alcohol. Al alcohol is bad for me. Like I, I don't have an alcohol problem, but it has a very big effect on my moods, even a glass of wine. Mm. So I just don't drink. Um, I, I used to be the guy that woke up at five o'clock in the morning, no matter where I am with an alarm clock every morning, no matter how much sleep I got. Now I wake up when I wake up. I don't use an alarm clock anymore. Um, I do a thing that Amy and I call digital Sabbath. So from Friday night, sundown to Saturday night, sundown, no phone, no email, just, you know, disconnect. And I have a life without phone phones and email. And that doesn't mean I don't do work sometimes on Saturdays. I'll do some work that doesn't require phone and email. Um, uh, I, I'm a big runner and I often find that when I'm running less, it has a pretty negative impact on how I feel in some kind, even if I'm tired. I put the energy into making sure I have time and space for that for myself because I need that. So I come back to this phrase that I like to use now called self-care, which is different for everyone, but you have to discover it yourself. Love it. Okay. So I have three rapid fire questions for you. You can probably answer them all in one word. So first off, you strike me off. This you strike me as a really efficient person. So what's one habit you can share with uh, someone, uh, with everyone, I guess? What's something unique that you do every day? Uh, throw everything away. Uh, I don't keep any paper. Uh, I don't 
uh, I don't keep any emails. I archive everything. My inbox is empty all the time. If I have things that I need to do, I put them on a to-do list. Um, I don't have drawers in my desk because uh, drawers are basically places things go to die. Folders are places things go to die. Uh, so I just try to process everything. And if I it's something I need to work on longer, um, I make sure it's in a place where I, I systematically go back to it. Well, I'm going to steal that. Okay. What's one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? Could be Evernote, could be a Fitbit. Uh, in the last year, probably Todoist, hmm. um, which I think I've, I've done lots of different ways of managing. I have a very short to-do list and sort of manage through things. Again, I don't keep anything. So Evernote is a good place for me to send stuff to never see it again. Um, uh, it's not particularly helpful for me because I don't, I don't keep notes like that. Um, but Todoist has been really helpful because it allows, because of the inter- integration with Gmail, um, it allows me to uh, have a sort of very tight to-do list. And it's also shareable, so I can share sort of individual things with other people without very much overhead. That's funny. As you say that. T-O-D-O-I-S-T. And there's, you know, 97 different to-do lists, but it's the one I found that I like the best. Cool. We'll drop that in the show notes. Final question for you. What's one must-read book, aside from your own books, that you'd recommend to everyone? Well, I think every entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur should read the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, it was written in the 1970s um, by a guy named um, uh, Robert Piersig, P-I-R-S-I-G. Um, it was his first book. Uh, it, it's uh, kind of a hippie philosophy treatise journey. Uh, the word that sort of came out of it was Chautauqua. He's like having a conversation uh, with his son as they do motorcycle trip across the country. And it's just this incredible treatise on philosophy, product, quality, um, accomplishing what your goal is against the backdrop of the narrator, the author, going crazy and having a psychotic break. And so it's this very powerful mix of um, accessible philosophy combined with this pretty captivating journey um, in a book that, again, anybody who builds anything, there's so much in it that's so worth reading and just soaking in. But it's not what you'd expect. It's not a here's how you do it. You have to read it slowly and think about it. So it's, it's one of my favorites. Love it. Well, Brad, this has been incredible. What's the best way for our people to find you online? Um, email brad at feld.com. Um, my Twitter's at bfeld, although uh, uh, President Trump ruined Twitter for me. So now I broadcast on Twitter, but I rarely look at it because it's just too toxic. And um, my blog at uh, felt.com. Great, Brad. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.